0: another edition of old school guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And, uh, this is number 75, number 75. Uh, I apologize for the last podcast where my voice was a little gravelly. Um, just some days with the allergies and, and some of the stuff that's in the air are worse than others. Plus I, I had actually forgotten to mention it there was that big sandstorm in the Sahara Desert and it got way up into the upper atmosphere and it kind of traveled around the world, you know, or, or whatever it was. And uh, I'm sure that affected it too, man. I, I know one thing, I'm allergic to Middle Eastern sand, having been there a couple times. Uh, so I don't, uh, I don't like it at all. So it was probably getting even with me on, uh, on some level. But there's a lot of interesting things uh, going on and a lot of good stuff to talk about. First up, I'd like to go back to that uh, St. Louis couple. Um, you know, the, the their two lawyers, they were out in front of their, you know, very nice looking home that they had bought as kind of a derelict and refurbished and made it nice. kind of live in this little neighborhood and in inside of St. Louis trying to bring something back to the kind of interior city of St. Louis, so they're there, and of course they get rewarded for all that by having hoodlums, anarchists, and what I call domestic terrorists crash down their gate, come in, talk a bunch of talk a bunch of nonsense at them, scare them half to death, so that they basically pick up uh, a rifle and a pistol and they come out and they keep these guys off their off their turf off their property and this has been big and i mean they've they've appeared on fox news a couple of times now and and of course a lot of the uh a lot of the things go on but you know just some of the salient points are is you know a lot of the they they were effective they worked they actually deserve medals if you ask me but uh you know what they did worked even though it wasn't the tactical proficiency that that a lot of people in the gun community would like to have seen and and have roundly criticized them for which i think is really small um most gun owners are not trained super ninjas nor do they come out all buffed out looking like some blackwater crossfit dude and dudette who who come out nor do they did they have the most up to date equipment i mean if you'd put the fact that, hey, and this is almost like the movie Die Hard, you know. The guy and his wife are in, this couple are in their stocking feet. Apparently, you know, there are a lot of people who don't wear shoes in their own home because they don't want to track stuff in and out. That's that's perfectly understandable. So they were kind of on their terrace, probably in their stocking feet, comfortable, going to have, you know, dinner, dinner outside. And, uh, you know, this all happens. And what they don't really get credit for is – They must have gotten in that house quickly gotten the weapons and then they got out and they put themselves in a very advantageous position where they had significant distance between them and these these hooligans and uh you know distance matters and that's one of the things you can always talk about but um yeah you know the guy's in a polo shirt and white canvas pants and his wife is in you know casual clothes and of course her her stance was not you know it wasn't that great of course he looked like he was out of an 80s action movie you know kind of you know has the gun kind of tucked into the hip I, i actually thought though that worked for them you notice that while the while the protesters talked a bunch of nonsense. Not one of them was going to put their foot on their property. And so they, they won. I mean, they actually won. That was a classic example of the fact you don't have to fire a shot, but you need possession of a gun. Had he had a bolt action rifle, uh, it could have been different. You know, it could have been very different. Nobody wants to get shot with anything but, you know, that 30-round magazine and the distance he had, he was clearly going to get off a lot of shots, you know, theoretically anyway. He was, you know, he had the ability, to the capacity, I should say, to get off a lot of shots and, you know, put a serious dent in that crowd. And they knew it. They knew it. They knew that that AR meant business. And the, um, you know, the, the PPK or, or whatever that little smaller pistol was, that the wife was holding, um, you know, that's just that's just more icing on the cake. If they'd both had those little tiny guns, would they have been as effective? I don't know. I think the deterrence, and appearance of the AR-15, you know, was the thing that made it. And the funny part is, if you put on any forum. Oh, in the last 20 years, probably that, yeah, my main defense gun is going to be a carry handle A2 and, and, uh, I've got one, <laughs> I'll just keep one magazine with it. And cause it didn't look like there were any spare magazines or any, if you posted that, all you were going to get was blowback of this will get you killed. You know, what's wrong with both of you. You both need to be ARs. Uh, both of you need ARs. Both of you need body armor and, and helmets and all this other, all this other stuff that over time people have just deemed to be necessary and if you don't have it it's it's uh you know somehow you're failing somehow you're just not living up to the standard but the truth of the matter is you don't need all that stuff uh you you need what you need sometimes and that was the appearance and capacity of an ar-15 and he would have been just as successful if he had an a1 or if he had an a4 um an M4, I should say, or an A4, uh, rifle or an M4 carbine, you know, he would have been just as effective. Um, you know, that is, that is a great weapon. Uh, he might've even been effective if he had a mini 14, you know, you get a 30 round magazine for those. And, uh, you know, that's, it doesn't have the fearsome appearance that the, uh, um, AR does, but you know, it's, it's got, it's got definite capacity and definite, um, is an effective weapon. It's definitely effective. So, um, you know, they did it right. They were on the spot. They did it right. They didn't get trapped in their house. They didn't get burned alive in their house or they weren't inside the house while the windows were being smashed and everything else. Uh, they basically held that crowd at bay. I I just think that a lot of these trainers and all these people criticizing it wasn't even like the day after there was a meme saying, and I actually didn't even kind of know it. I saw this meme on Facebook or something, making fun of the guy's shirt, his pants, no shoes, and the rest. And I'm like, what is this referencing? And then I, when I saw the story, it it made sense. But um, you know, it's it's just one of those things of we have a right to defend ourselves. Sometimes the process of doing that may not be pretty. And uh, you know, the, there are guys who live in this. I don't want to say it's a fantasy world, but it's almost that kind of trainer, tactical trainer, you know, a Blackwater wannabe survivalist world. You see it. I I mentioned it before on the magazines, you know, these survival magazines that are out there. You see them in the, they sell them in the supermarkets. Maybe there's others that, that I don't see. I just see the ones that are, that are plopped in the supermarkets. And, uh, you know, they always have some buffed, you know, guy with his tactical beard and and all the contractor clothing and all of that standing next to his, you know, obviously tricked out Hummer. All of that is just fantasy. Um, people who live that lifestyle, I think, unless you're extremely wealthy, you don't have all those things and you probably don't look that way. So that's that's all something that's very different. And expect to expect this couple in St. Louis or anybody else to live up to all that. Um, it's just unrealistic I mean most people who defend themselves with guns are just very ordinary people and they come in all shapes sizes colors and and everything else Um, ages sometimes can be very young or can be very old so you know I think it was definitely one of the a big wake-up call and I think uh, um, it has definitely sent a message and I think it's being received. You notice that these riots are kind of winding down now. You know, they dismantled the Chaz, you know, Chaz, that little piece of utopia, which turned out to be Lord of the Flies, you know, basically ruled by, you know, God only knows what inside there. We, we still don't have the story of what went on in there, but that's that place. Just, you know, you can see when they took down the barricades and went in there, what a, just what a mess it was. But a signal has been sent and uh you know the the sad part is signals have been sent both ways um there are obviously some very serious anarchist domestic terrorist groups out there most of them are just talk and you know there's pictures they have pictures of some of these guys They're walking around and what looks like an assault rifle turns out to be the 22 caliber version of something, the 22 long rifle version of something. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of that. I think some of the guns you saw around Chaz were definitely probably airsoft guns. I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of that. There's a lot of bluster that goes with them. But there's also some people who are committed to destroying the country and they're on the they're on the loose and they've got to round them up and somehow get control of these people signals that have been sent back the other way are you know what playtime's over and playtime's over and it's no fun anymore and you start coming into people's neighborhoods and guess what more people are gonna be showing up in doorways and in windows with some very very effective things and these crowds are not going to just have their way. They're going to pay a price. And, you know, it, the signal's been sent. And whether you agree with it or disagree with it, a lot of these people are going to be, these, these protesters aren't going to be here. If they try that, they're not going to be here in the morning. They're going to be, you know, in a big heap somewhere and they're going to be deceased. It's it's just not gonna happen that they're gonna that they're gonna, you know, pick and choose and loot and burn and destroy things, willy-nilly. There will be resistance and it will be, you know, somebody defending their home. Defending the home, uh, you saw it. Men and women both do it again. That that woman who was in St. Louis, she was out there with her tiny little pocket rocket, you know, her little tiny pistol, little PPK, but she was out there. And I mean, men, women, even older children will fight to defend their homes from people who just want to burn it and loot it and perhaps kill the people inside and everything else. Um, They have no idea of the sleeping giant that they could awaken should they try this. It's one thing, and it's, it's a shame. And, you know, it's one thing for them to burn and loot their own neighborhoods or these inner city neighborhoods where the protests start and these things. It's one thing to do that and you know that's still an egregious thing they they had uh, some people on one of the networks who you know people had businesses and these are these are black people who had businesses for 20 or 30 years or worked for years to set up their own business and those things are burned out they're gone they're absolutely destroyed it's complete shambles. And not only do they lose the building and all of the equipment inside it, but they lose all the supplies or merchandise they have. It's absolutely heartbreaking to see somebody who's worked that hard watch it all go up in smoke one night because, you know, these anarchists, these domestic terrorists want to run amok. So it goes back to, you know, you look at our big cities. Our big cities are effectively imploding and the murder rate in new york kansas city i'm sure portland and seattle and, and definitely chicago you know places like that that's going way up way way up because the police have been undercut and undermined so much that they can't get out there and enforce these laws they can't get out there and circulate and stop criminals or or force the criminals kind of underground so now we have this new lawlessness that's in these inner cities and it takes a lot of policing and a lot of years and a lot of organization to suppress that kind of crime and literally within two months it's just been totally unleashed like a genie out of the bottle so I don't know what the answer is but I do know that the answer lies in part in holding some of these civic leaders accountable. And we're in a very very bad situation where you know they use race as a way to to kind of I don't know coronate somebody to be mayor of a of a city that's got a large minority population or they use they use race as a way to promote people in a police department who shouldn't be promoted. It just shouldn't be because they're they're out there. Their sympathies are clearly with the crowd, and they're unwilling to back their brothers and sisters in blue who are trying to just maintain order and maintain a safe society. So we'll see how it happens. But this is really not as racial as people think i mean when you see some of these some of these films of you'll see what appears to be a caucasian woman who's probably very well educated uh in her say her late 20s or early 30s out there just screaming at police officers calling them foul names and everything else uh, you see that, you see those, those two lawyers they uh, uh, arrested, you know, the they, it was, they were both female and they were, they were packing Molotov cocktails and all the rest of the stuff. Now, these are people who are well-educated and should have respect for the judicial system. They're, they're a part of it. You know, I mean, now, of course, they're going to say it's imperfect and it's, it's not great, but, you know. I'm, I'm sure that that does not, does not justify carrying around Molotov cocktails and burning out innocent people's business or even torching police cars, which are public property. Um, you know, you see some of this and you wonder who is really teaching kids, who's teaching your kids. Um, there are a lot of places where mom and dad are paying heavy tuition or they've gotten, taking out big student loans or something else to send little junior or little Jane to college. And what are they being taught? And I think there needs to be a definite examination of, are they being radicalized? Because when I see these crowds, they are radicalized. That crowd in St. Louis, that tried to bust in on that, on that couple, i'm sure that there were people in that crowd who are radicalized and i mean they're just like jihadist and you can't use the word enough radicalized they're radicalizing children and young people with these beliefs now i've i pointed out i know firsthand that this unitarian universalist church does the same thing does the same thing and You know, they try to inspire and they radicalize their younger members to go out and do, you know, civil disobedience. But it just always seems like their own children aren't out there. They're they're radicalizing other people's children. Maybe it's time that we go and take the children back. You know, if you have somebody in college, you have to kind of, in a respectful way, challenge the beliefs of what they're being taught and maybe provide without, without anger and emotion, provide another point of view. And also point out that, you know, a lot of these prof, not a lot, all of these professors and some of these other, you know, creep educators, they, they don't have any skin in the game. You know, if you go out and get arrested, you know, old professor Jones isn't gonna come down and make bail or defend you in court or anything else. They have no skin in the game. They're they're just like it's it's the fire and forget missile they launch it and they don't really care where it lands they don't care how it explodes they don't care what they're they're just radicalizing they're the factory that's turning out the munitions that are going and exploding at these protests i mean that's that's literally if you want to you know put it in in those kind of terms of what they're doing with these people they're creating people who are going out there and there's a huge number of people who have been radicalized and turned violent. And a lot of that is the teaching in in the schools. And everybody says, well, it's the colleges. You know, these colleges and universities and da-da-da-da-da. They're right. I don't doubt that. But you will also see some of this in high schools because monkey see, monkey do. A lot of stuff that goes on in colleges gets copied and mimicked in high schools so it's very important to stay on top of high schools very important now more than ever you've got to stay on your kids education what are they actually being taught and i would think that most many parents who and everybody's are trying to make a living sometimes both mother and father both work but i think that's one of the reasons the homeschooling movement has has grown so great is because not because kids don't do well in school but because what's being taught there are are just values that that really don't match what our nation was founded on or anything else so you know keep an eye on these people and they can be they can now be church people they can be anything any adult that is trying to, quote, teach your kids in some sort of program, you have to scrutinize very, very carefully and find out what they're saying and everything else and and strike back at them. I mean, you might have to confront them personally and say, this is BS and take your, your child out of the program because this is really, this is crazy. To see these kind of protests and the kind of people who are doing this is crazy and it's got to stop. It absolutely has to stop. Okay, that's enough for politics, and that's man, that's 20 minutes worth. Um, uh, here's a couple other things going on. I it never ceases to amaze me that the two weapons that when I was entering the gun culture and, and younger, and as it as it developed, the two weapons that were the most revered were really the 1911 and the m14 those were very very revered weapons and now they're the ones that gun culture 2.0 or 2.5 however you want to call them the newer wave just wants to crap on they just want to crap on those two and and partly it's because they they're kind of this establishment things and and of course no one really wants to look back and say yeah the, those two things got it right they want to look at the stuff they have now and say well this is so much better and this is not new uh this happened very much in the 60s and 70s and, and probably the 80s to the early 80s anyway with the um one of the pistols that they could that gun writers could dog on was the luger because nobody made it anymore it was face it they went out of production 1943, 1944, whenever it was. And um, so there there wasn't anybody they could offend by bagging on the Luger. Collectors always liked the Luger and didn't care what what uh, the gun culture at the time wanted to say about it. And, you know, the fact of the matter is nobody was manufacturing it. They couldn't, it didn't offend anybody who was a manufacturer or a retailer or anything. Um, so they could bag on it. You know they they would talk about how terrible it was, and um, that went on and on. But now it's extended to the nineteen eleven. And I was watching one video which was just horrid. It was some guy and I don't even know his background. You know, again another one of these trainers. You know the the um, tyranny of the trainers, and he's basically saying, well, if you're carrying a nineteen eleven, you probably have the wrong model, and you're probably carrying it for the wrong reason. And so I th- I clicked on the video, and I said, okay, I'll, I'll watch this. And and it was just idiotic. I mean, it was just some man-child um, kind of explaining that if you want a good 1911, you have to get one of the handmade ones, which he said were the very first ones, like the World War I 1911s, and then the ones made now by, you know, all the, the big manufacturers that, that make the handmade guns, you know, uh, Wilson, Les Bear you know, all the rest of them. So he's saying, those, those are the only ones again. I'm I'm just sitting there going, that's absolutely insane. And in fact, the day before I proved him radically wrong. I have an auto, a, a new car arms auto ordinance, 1911 that I've had for oh, seven, six, seven years now. Uh, it's a nice gun. I mean, it's, it's a GI-style 45. nothing special, nothing high speed. It has not been enhanced, never been to a gunsmith. It, it just, the way it came out of the box. And so I, I had, the day before, I had taken that gun to the range, that pistol to the range. And it's a very pedestrian pistol. I mean, face it, most people would consider a, a, a quote, good, quote, unquote, 1911 to be something that costs twice as much. But anyway, I took this one to the range and I put up a uh, a five inch diameter bullseye on a silhouette target uh, at 25 meters, which is 27.5 yards if I'm not, something like that. So, um, you know, the bottom line is, I was able to hit that orange bullseye in the center of the target uh, very routinely. Now, it's not magic. If you don't do your part, yes, you can pull a shot to the right or to the left or high or low. But if you do your part, it basically hits point of aim in that five-inch circle at 25 meters, which is really, really good, which is really, really good. Uh, You know, it doesn't have carry optics. It doesn't even have adjustable sights or anything. It's got, you know, the later uh gi style sites which are very good um they're very good because they they um you know they're not the easiest to pick up in the world but they're a lot better than the early 1911 sites they're absolutely rock solid they do not (laughs) they do not go out of adjustment so you know, it's, it's there. And I mean, if you can get that kind of accuracy at 25 yards now, Hey, is that going to win anything at camp Perry? No. Is that good enough to stake your butt on? You bet. If you had to carry that in defense of your person, uh, you could do a whole lot worse. I mean, I've, I've seen other guns that at 25, you know, they're, they're two feet to the right or to the left, but this one is, is dialed right in. I don't know if they all come out of the box that way, but this one did. So I, I look at that and I say, this guy's just fundamental. I've just proved this guy exactly wrong. This inexpensive 1911 is more than capable of defending my person or engaging a target at what we would consider to be kind of the, the top end of range on a pistol target. I don't think really anybody shoots beyond 25 yards or, you know, 30 meters, maybe, um, you know, can you shoot someone? Could you hit a man-sized target at 50? Ah, I'm going to try it. And I think, I think I'll think i be able to hit it pretty consistently, but it's going to be a man-sized target, so it's not going to be a beautiful group. It's not going to be an Olympic uh, or even a Camp Perry, you know, beautiful piece of uh, um, grouping and, and stuff, but it'll do it. So I just really kind of wonder. I, I don't need a $4,000 pistol to do that. And I cannot afford a four thousand dollar pistol to do that, and I absolutely don't want to have to use that in a situation and have that four thousand dollar pistol um, all of a sudden become part of the investigation and everything else because I may not get it back. You just might not. Um, anytime somebody confiscates something from you, you you may not you may not ever see it again. And uh, so even if I had that kind of money, I would probably be reticent. But to me, it's a non-issue because I don't have that kind of money. So uh, I have to look for other ways to defend myself that are reasonable. And and the fact of the matter is there's more reasonable guns out there than, than you can really. We're living in a golden age. We are absolutely living in a golden age. So when people are crapping on the 1911, um, you know, you might just want to look at what their motivations are. Um, normally, it's to sell you training. And then it's to sell you high-end equipment and uh, i can talk about the training a little bit later i got a couple questions in the q a about training but um you know the fact of the matter is there's a lot of good stuff out there i would even i would even opine that i have not shot one but one of those tesis 1911s you know the turkish 1911 basic 1911 a1 same site same everything would be an excellent weapon to use I know I've got a 1927 Argentine and it is an excellent weapon to use again no no does it have carry optics would it impress anybody on in range TV no they would snicker at it because it wouldn't do as well in their gun game as as something else but I can tell you for defense it's a it's a good piece of equipment a very good piece of equipment so i i really like the auto ordinance pistol one of the things i like about it which i hated about it when i bought it but i like about it now is the auto ordinance is actually a series 80. okay so it's got the extra safety gizmos inside not that i find them necessary or or essential but they're nice they're nice to have in there i mean it was an improvement to the design and at the time everybody was was when series 80 came out when colt brought it out everybody was like oh this is terrible this is awful and and uh the rest of it but i i actually don't think it's that bad it's it's, it it does add a margin of safety but it's really a margin of safety most people never use so uh take that for what it is but it's it's kind of nice to have it there i think it's a nice pistol and definitely uh a, a good useful tool Okay. One of the things I got asked was, you know, the NATO standard rifle, going back to the, I, I've reiterated, I've covered it a couple times of why the M14 was selected over the FNFAL by the U.S. military. Why was that? Well, go back a podcast or two and you can you can hear that. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that the lar- what most, what the gun creators you see on YouTube do not what they do not tell you, because they don't know, is that there was a much larger context going on. Uh, When NATO, NATO was formed in 1949. And essentially, you know, the the deal with it was, um, the United States was really the most, was a massive military power, even in 1948, 49, after the Berlin airlift, even though we demobilized most of our World war ii military we were still very powerful and until the soviets detonated their atom bomb we were the only people that had it so it was a very very um unusual situation most of the year you know britain was broke they they were basically financially broke um because of because of the second world war uh obviously their empire was was collapsing Um, They also were embarking on a kind of a socialist nanny state. And, you know, the results of which you see today were, gee, they can't own handguns or anything good anymore. The continental powers in Europe were, you know, the Belgium, Germany was all divided up, wasn't even really an independent country at that time. It was still occupied Germany uh France, Belgium, Holland, all those places were still Denmark were still reeling from the effects of the Second World War and so they you know they were kind of they were kind of you know being brought in the umbrella but NATO was never designed to be to turn all these countries into vassal states and say you know kind of we have to do things this way um when the United States said hey we got this new cartridge of 762 NATO um, they basically accepted it without any kicking or, or or complaining, especially the British. I mean, they they were fooling around with those those goofy bullpup things, but I think they kind of knew that, that that wasn't really going to be a great a great way forward. Um, even though I think they did actually officially adopt it, then they kind of unadopted it a month later or whatever. But uh, you know, getting a standard rifle even in NATO is is a real problem because. Number one, countries are sovereign. Uh, France stayed with their rifle, and they stayed with, even with their own caliber, seven point five French. They never adopted seven six two NATO. So the French kind of broke and said, "Hey, we're gonna do our own thing. Do this." Uh, the British said, "We'll we'll uh, adopt the FAL," and um, you know they they did that, but in ch- but in just converting it for their own production, converting the metric to the inch to the INCHA measurements, they wound up with, and and their own Ministry of Defense made some tweaks to the design. They wound up with a rifle that was very similar, but in some ways different than the uh, original FAL. Uh, the Germans w- would have probably done the same thing, except the uh, Belgians said, no, nah, I, don't, I don't think you're gonna produce these. Well, you can buy them from us, but we're not going to let you produce these because they had a history of being invaded by the Germans twice and, you know, they, they they didn't want to turn that into a third time, so um, you know, then the Germans basically had to go to another design that they could produce, and and that eventually led to the G3. So there was never going to be a NATO standard rifle, and the United States, as I said, was very happy with the Garand system, and um, you know, his only it was it was really a foregone conclusion that a Garand style rifle would replace the the m1 rifle in in service but you also have to look at the totality where i'm going with this is you have to look at the totality of nato Um, there were a lot of things that were more important than a standard rifle a lot of things and things like fuel making sure that's standard Uh, making sure that the command and control and procedures are our standards so that you can actually move as a, as a coordinated force. You just don't have these independent armies out there running around doing their own thing. And they've got to be able to talk to each other. We have to have common radios and we have to have other pieces of common equipment just so that we can operate in the same battle space without clashing and, and, uh, running into each other and, and all that, all that was much more important than a standard rifle. And I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, you can even look at the, the fact that they would never have a standard rifle is just look at 7.62 NATO ammunition, all the stuff produced by the different countries, and it all has that little circle cross on the bottom. But if you take that ammunition apart, it's very, very different. Um, I don't know what the exact specs that were given to the different countries were, but I think it probably was very general and very short. I think it had to be brass cased. I think it had to be non-corrosive primed, and I think it needed a bullet at approximately 147 grains, and I say approximately because I'll get to that, at a certain velocity. So it would operate in the conglomeration of weapons they would have chambered for it, be machine guns or rifles or whatever else. If you look at some of that ammo and, like, you look at the uh, German ball ammunition, the can of lure on it is very, very different. It's, it's designed very, very differently, and there's no real way that you can vary the length of the cartridge or anything. It's actually quite quite ingenious. It's done so that when you crimp it down, the bullet will not push back into the case if it's experiencing some problems in the feeding cycle of the weapon. But you also, when you, take, when you take the German bullets, and you used to be able to buy these bullets surplus. They were selling them for nothing. Um, but when you take them and weigh them, you find out that they come out anywhere from 142 grains to like 146 grains. So there's a lot of variation there. So we couldn't even make NATO standard ammunition that was all that standard. It would all basically function, but it was not identical. So you weren't going to have an identical rifle, um, in between in between these countries, and these countries were allowed sovereign stuff. You know they were allowed to be to make some of their own choices, um, and and you know just putting NATO together was a tremendous undertaking. You had you know Greeks and Turks were traditional enemies, yet now they're in the same alliance, and you kind of have to keep them separated because you don't want them clashing over some of their uh, uh, friction points that they have as far as their public, their uh, um, international relations go and everything else. You just, you want to kind of keep those two separated so they're not bumping up against each other. So just, and, and, you know, it's how unrealistic is it to think that, well, I'm right next to a Belgian unit and I'm out of rifles and maybe they'll give me some of theirs or I'm, I need some magazines. I'll go over to these Germans and get some magazines, but gee, they don't fit because they use a G3 and we use an M14 and the Belgians over there use the FAL and, and of course the French back there use a different rifle and a different caliber. You know, it's just never going to be that kind of a problem. The, the problems it would be would be probably fuel and maybe a few other things, fuel, radio, some other th- of this kind of stuff, uh, would be much more important to be interchangeable and uh, interoperable than than would be the rifles and, and pistols. You know, the United States, you know, NATO, the 9mm, they, they talk about how we, we forced them on 762 NATO. Well, they, they essentially forced the 9mm on us, and we told them to do pack sand. I mean, until. Uh, 1984 we used 1911 pistols and 1911 pistols were in our inventory even until the uh, late 1990s so you know we we did not immediately convert to nine millimeter pistols either so there goes another NATO standardization because you know frankly it's not that important you hate to say it but rifles and pistols when you're putting together an endeavor like NATO just wasn't important as a lot of these other political and, you know, larger military considerations that were there. Now, the Warsaw Pact was very successful because that was just driven with a few outliers. That was just driven by the uh, uh, Soviet Union. You know, they were producing all the ammunition and they were setting up the ammunition plants in the Warsaw Pact countries. Uh, They told them what kind of rifles to do. And outside of the Czechs, who came up with some different designs and and you know a few other things uh, everybody was just lockstep so it was much easier for a totalitarian type arrangement which in which the Warsaw Pact really were vassal states to the uh, to the Soviet Union but that just wasn't the case in NATO just wasn't the case um, NATO standardization when you look at it um, a lot of it was just some boring stuff. It's stuff like screw threads, you know, so you can, you can repair. It's kind of that old metric tool versus inch tool stuff. A lot of these things, you know, standardizing a lot of these types of things. So that war production could go in and they could actually, if we gave them equipment, they could actually service it because they would have the right type of tools. You know, it's a lot of this kind of stuff that's in the background um, was just more important than the rifle. It it really was. So when I explain when I explain that stuff, that's really what I'm getting at is why was that such a difficult thing for NATO to do? And was it really that important to standardize rifles, calibers, and all that? And the answer is it, it was important, but it was not supremely important. Okay. Let us go. To my favorite part of the show which is questions and answers and we have a question from our friend Clown Bear who says what are your go-to AR magazines and uh, I will say that uh, I covered this in an earlier podcast about magazines because there are magazine Nazis out there there are the the magazine Nazis that you're using shitty magazines and this is really AR centric you're using shitty magazines, and therefore you will die on the street because you will be sitting there with a jammed AR because your follower will tilt, and you will be killed because of it. Okay, uh, I have all kinds of AR magazines that I've collected up over time. Uh, the everyone's current favorite, the PMag, is very good and very reliable. I got no, I have no issues with it on that. To me, it's heavy and kind of bulky and doesn't fit. Very well, in a lot of the um, a lot of the web gear that's made for the standard, you know, Colt Colt style or M16 style U.S. military that kind of that stay nag uh, magazine now because really an M16 magazine is is really the NATO standard now. So I've never had problems with U.S. GI magazines from whatever vintage. I've even got twenty rounders that go back to the nineteen sixties. Never had problems with them, as long as the magazine is undamaged, it's clean, and, you know, you check the spring tension. And I've never really seen one with a bad spring, although I will admit I'm sure that there are some out there. So if your magazine is well-maintained, you're probably okay. Aftermarket magazines, and PMAG was one of the, the aftermarket magazines, but it's since been, at least as a substitute standard, you know it's allowed in the military i don't know if it's been adopted i'm sure they bought scads of them and i'm sure people like them um i've had never had a feeding issue with a pmag magazine again i i don't like the it's a little bit bigger and it's a little bit different design and i don't find it to be any better any worse than anything else there are a lot of aftermarket commercial type magazines 20 and 30 rounds i find the ones from brownells to be excellent every bit, the equal of USGI magazines. And uh, I've even found that the retro AR magazine, the 25 rounder, which in range TV swears will not work unless you download it to 23 or 22 rounds. Uh, I've loaded mine up to 25 rounds on numerous occasions, and it has worked every single time. Uh, Military arms channel, I'm not a real big fan of them, but they've got the same experience. So um, in range TV is blowing smoke because, again, they're saying shit without any practical experience. You know, go go try it. Get get the thing and try it. And, and if it jams, it jams. I mean, uh, we're, we're all big people. We can accept the truth. But when some people are just repeating what they think is right or stuff they've heard before without actually testing it out that's when they're full of, full of baloney. So the Brownells stuff is all good and that includes their waffle magazine, you know the 20 round waffle magazine for retro ARs. All that stuff is really good. Um, again, can a, can a bad one slip out? I suppose, but um, the most important thing to do with your magazines is to clean them and test them. And if they work, they work. And if they don't work, well then get rid of them. A lot of the aftermarket magazines appear to be fine um, especially for range work and, and uh, uh, training and things like that, they appear to be fine. And it's up to you. If, if they work, you know, and there are a lot of 7 $8 magazines out there, um, hey, if they work for you, there, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I don't have I, – I will tell you, though, my preference. If there's, a, if there's piles of magazines in front of me and they say, take whichever ones you want and you're going to go into harm's way, I will probably take usgi magazines just because they have a very good reputation i've used them countless countless times Uh, so i would probably take usgi magazines that's what i'd take so that would be my go-to magazine but i would not be terribly disappointed with with the others i would i would probably have to do some some testing though to make sure that i had the the threshold confidence, but you know, a magazine's pretty simple. You can kind of tell when a magazine's not going to work just by looking at, you know, are the feed lips so thin that they're going to deform, um, you know, on and on. You can tell when a magazine's really not going to work. So um, I would go with USGI, those are the go to magazines, but the other ones are going to be fine. So that is the answer to that question. The next question. Uh, somebody emailed me this one. What do you recommend? And the answer is, I don't recommend anything for urban unrest gear. And that is the, that's going back to do I need the helmet, the body armor, the magazine pouches for 30 freaking rounds of, ma- of, of stuff, you know? Um, I would say that the first thing I would do let's say that you're you're like the guy in St. Louis or you're like the guy in anywhere USA and you have an AR and let's just let's just keep it simple it's a a fixed handle AR that's been around for 20 30 years whatever kind of a recreational gun whatever and you sit there and say, hey, man, I, I may need to up my game here a little bit. And, and you know, I kind of keep my magazines in a cardboard box downstairs and my bullets are, my rounds are in an ammo can. And and so what do I need to do? I, I would get some kind of little tiny shoulder bag or something that you can, you know, pick up and grab and go. And there's there's some that are made out of nylon that look cool. There's some that are made out of canvas that look retro, whatever it is. And I would, um, I would definitely have three to four magazines loaded in there. And I would inspect those things every couple of days or or at least routinely. And uh, that's, I would have that. So you have the rifle, you pick up this pouch with the magazines in it, and you run to wherever you need to be and do whatever you need to do. Uh, Whether you store a loaded magazine in your rifle is up to you. Um, And the kind of safety requirements that you have around your home and all the rest of it. Um, But anyway, that's what I would do you know i would have just some go some magazines that you can load and, and face it you're not going to be in a gunfight where more than four magazines 120 rounds are probably going to be necessary so um, i would say that that's probably a really good thing to do you know defending home hearth neighborhood that's that's the way to go uh, all this other gear looks really high speed and i know the gamers wear it and i know they even have matches where you got to carry all your bullets on you for the entire match you know uh, yeah i know they do that and uh, you know whatever they do they do uh <clears throat> one piece of gear you might consider if you don't go and get a helmet and you think hey you know there might be there might be some trouble um but if you've got to do a lot of running around in the dark this sounds strange but you might want to get a bike, just one of those inexpensive bike helmets. That will help you because that way, hey, there's nothing worse than you're running around and you bang your head against something, you know, because the house is dark and you're trying to move from one place to another, or you're looking in one direction and a tree branch is, is there in another. If, if you got any kind of, if you have any kind of possibility of banging your noggin, um, a bike helmet is actually pretty good protection. Doesn't have any ballistic protection or anything. And and yeah, they they look because they're streamlined. Yeah, it kind of looks like you're wearing a big uh, a big nutshell on your head or something. They look goofy, but uh, and and don't get like an orange one, which makes you a target. Get like the dark blue, the very the midnight blue one or something that at nighttime will will look black or something but um those are that's good gear to have uh the only other the only other thing is um you know knee pads are always nice to have and they don't have to be fancy you can get those kinds that roofers use or that um i was saying rollerbladers but i think it's like skateboarders use them you can get kind of that i mean now granted you have to have the time to put all that stuff on and you know you're wandering around with all that that's you know, you kind of look weird. You don't really, you don't really fit in, but if you want protective equipment, that's, that's just going to kind of protect you from bumps and bruises and things. Um, that's, that's stuff that'll work. And, uh, the bike helmet will protect your noggin from, you know, Hey, you're, you're trying to dive into a car and you hit the, uh, you hit the door post with your, with your bean, uh, that'll, that'll definitely protect you. So, uh, other than that if you want to if you want ballistic protection you've got to go with the uh you got to go with the helmets the the real you got to go with the real shit and that's going to be pretty heavy and you start getting to be start getting up there a little bit um, sometimes your knees say well, hey I don't really want to carry this extra 40 40 pounds of stuff around especially when you're trying to move fast so be very careful that's why I say lightweight um we used to have a light infantry phrase where we used to say travel light freeze at night well it's the same thing you travel light and you can get you can scoot around and kind of move around but you won't have a um you won't be carrying around this ton of this ton of, ton of armored gear okay ah that brings me that brings me to another the most important point is if you think that you're going to be in that kind of situation or any kind of situation, get off your twin fifties and exercise. Even if it's just walking for an hour a day, um, get off your twin fifties and exercise because, you know, you can't just be a couch potato, throw on all that crud, or even a rifle and, you know, run around the homestead. Can't do it. You're going to, you're going to be winded. And you're not going to be able to uh, fire anything because you'll be panting so hard. You'll never never uh, get a sight picture through your uh, through your carry handle. So, you know, one of the things is do some cardio or do, do whatever it is you can do. Even if it's just walking for 15, 30, you know, and then increase, get up to where you can walk an hour a day. And uh, that will help you a lot more than a freaking catalog with a bunch of high dollar gear okay let's look at best way to improve pistol shooting i talked about this before i'll just say it again real quick go find yourself if as opposed to spending hundreds if not thousands of dollars in a high-speed shooting school which is one option so if you want to do that do that or taking course from guys who are going to teach you the fancy footwork and you know all that <clears throat> you want to improve your marksmanship with a pistol go find yourself a precision we used to call them bullseye pistol leagues but go find a precision pistol league go there and fire even if you're firing a modest gun and, and you know yeah the guy next to you has got a pardini that cost two thousand dollars and that was used by the last gold medalist in the olympics and you're shooting something very very pedestrian um, doesn't matter go there shoot you will find that the concentration the discipline and the practice and all the other things that go along with that will tighten up your pistol shooting so I would do that and then you move into the center fire um, version of the same thing even with one of your duty guns you you know fixed sight duty gun you will still see the benefits and it will tighten up your pistol shooting those old guys who used to write in the gun magazines, knew this. And that's why they were all fundamentally competitors. Whether you look at Skeeter Skelton, Charles Askins, uh, to a lesser degree, I don't know that Keith really did that, but Elmer Keith really did that. But a lot of those guys, Bill Jordan, a lot of those guys who were great shots, great pistol shots, um, basically, you know, they, they spent... long time in competition and that's where they got their fundamentals and that's where they got to the point where hey they could pick up a pistol and hit something with it Um, it just wasn't all this you know ninja dancing um, that a lot of people do nowadays so uh, the old-fashioned way still works if you want to avail it it's a lot cheaper than in the long run it's a lot cheaper than going to a course and doing this and that some of these courses now cost what i'll just say 1000 bucks for a week long course and bring your own ammo bring 200 250 bucks worth of ammo um, whatever it is and then your gun and all the other all your other gear with you okay that's 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 cool if you got the money to do that and want to do that that's fine but there is another path and that's the path the obverse of that, which I added, was what's the best way to improve rifle shooting? And you can do the same thing. Uh, find a find a small bore rifle league. You can get a pretty modest 22 target rifle. Um, fire it and just get used to the fundamentals, man. You know, no one likes to admit it, and I'm one of those no ones. <laughs> I'm one of them. But face it, when a target gets missed and I'm shooting, it's usually my fault it's almost never the gun. It's almost never that my gun isn't high speed enough, or I didn't have a high speed enough piece of equipment. It's me. And so when you come to that realization, you say, hey, I'm the reason stuff gets missed, or I'm the reason that uh, um, my shooting is at the level it's at. uh, then, Then you can start, once you do that honest reflection, then you can go around and start improving it. And you can sit there and one of the ways to do that is to improve with the fundamentals. A lot of people don't learn how to shoot very well anymore, because they get either half-assed instruction from somewhere, or they get, you know, family members trying to teach them. And then there's all those other, you know, barriers about family members and things. Um, a lot of times, the best, some of the best shots I've seen are people who get involved as kids. They shoot and they kind of get it. They got a coach. They shoot. Uh, is it is it yeah it's not really fun ninja tactical video game stuff but it's the basics and the basics are what build you into a great shot not you know how fast can i run with a with a um, kettlebell you know can i throw the kettlebell down range and then go down and and uh, shoot prone from where it lands that's not the skill the skill is do you have the fundamentals of marksmanship so that you can consistently shoot your rifle so I would go go do the small bore, and it's actually a lot more entertaining than you think, and it's a lot more fun than you think sometimes. Okay, did you see James Yeager's video on stupid things forty caliber guys say? Um, I think it was actually stupid shit forty caliber guys say. Um, I did see that somebody sent me somebody sent me the thing and said, "Hey, did you see this? What did you think? Tell me what you think." I watched the video. And frankly, I was very unimpressed. Uh, All these trainers and the guys who run these schools, what they want to see are effectively Glock 9mm. I've talked about this before. They don't really like these other calibers, and they don't really like seeing different guns. And the reason is because they don't want to have somebody's gun go down in the middle of something, and the guy doesn't get his money's worth out of the course, and it creates all this other stuff. So, but talking about that, what is wrong with the forty caliber? Well, everybody kind of knows it's, it's probably more powerful than it needs to be for organizations. Although individuals can, some individuals can shoot it very, very well. Um, when you look at the broad spectrum of people they hire for these law enforcement organizations, it, it has not been the best choice. Um, I would say that if you're a homeowner, you're looking for a gun, And if 40 caliber is what's there, you know, and you can shoot it, that's always, that's always a good thing. Um, I always believe that people should shoot the largest caliber they can handle effectively. That's just me. Other people believe that nine millimeter is it. And there is the cult of the nine millimeter, which, you know, we've kind of talked about before. So I, I don't really want to go there, but I think My whole deal is the 40 cal is not as bad as people are ragging and dogging on it now. It's actually a good cartridge. Uh, I wouldn't go out and buy a new one. There are so many decent used ones out there that you can get whatever kind of model you're looking at and and the rest of it. Same thing with 357 SIG. I mean, it's a good cartridge. Uh, I would not worry about it. You know, if you're, if you're not going to be a really hardcore shooter and go out and try to shoot 500 rounds every month. You're going to take it out a couple times a year to familiarize with it, go through maybe 200 rounds. Um, It's an anathema to say that because everyone says, oh, you got to do more, more, more. But there's sometimes people do what they can do. Uh, It's not going to be a bad choice, but it is going to have more recoil, less capacity, and be more expensive. And those are not necessarily bad things in and of themselves, but they are considerations if uh, you're looking to shoot a lot, if you're looking to have maybe a significant other who doesn't shoot very often or really at all, then there's, those, are, those are big considerations. So that's just what it is, just a trade-off, just that trade-off. But there's nothing inherently bad about it, and for James Jager to kind of make fun of everybody who likes it is, is ridiculous. Okay, I got one I got one email that just said carry optics question mark and uh, I think carry optics are fine for competition. I think they're they're probably cool. Uh, I know that in in some target competition there people are using the optical sites. Uh, carry optics are kind of to me those those little small ones that kind of take the place of a rear sight. I still have questions on battery life, durability, and and a few other things. Um, right now, and, and maybe in low light, you know that might be a better deal. If you're a policeman on the night shift, you know they may be helpful. But my I always go back to the question of, okay, well, does it stay on 24 hours a day? When do you know to change the battery? How does it? How does all that logistics work? Uh, but I can see where hey, you're you see the bad guy down a dark alley. Um, you might not be able to see your pistol sights, but you could see the dot in the the carry optic. I see value in that for law enforcement. Um, and of course, that, that extends into homeowners. Although I would say that if you're a homeowner defending the house, man, you turn on all the lights. Don't give anybody the advantage of the darkness. But uh, when it comes to, you know, banging routine, I, I don't know that the military on any level, including special operations guys, are really... They may have it and may be playing with it, but I don't know that they would actually seriously use it. Uh, There's there's beauty and simplicity to that thing we were talking about with the 1911, which is the the wonderful fixed sight that doesn't go out of alignment. That's always there and that you can depend on and that just one less complication to deal with. So there is some beauty to that. And I don't know that carry optics have evolved enough. Uh, when they get them to the point where it's as trouble free as an iron sight or nearly as trouble free, then you might see it then you might see it there. but um, until then it's something that uh, I prefer to remain dubious and uh, it would have to be proven to me that it's such an advantage that I would have to uh, um, forego everything else and just use that well we've covered a lot of stuff today and this is old school guns episode 75 we are finished you can always email me at kbmakel at com, or you can leave questions for me on the Podbean site and i will answer them in the next uh in the next podcast next podcast this was number 75 and uh As always, you know, we want you to be safe out there and realize that, you know, we are in some dangerous times. So please be careful. Please use your head. best weapon you have is what's between your ears. So this is, but for right now, this is Old School Guns, out.